Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Here he comes. Hey, Jordan. There he is. Hey, guys. There how's he it going? Is. Hey, how's it you. going, Jordan? Good to see you guys. Good to meet you. Well, good to, good meet, to you. meet you. Yeah. <laughs> we're excited, man. We're excited. Um, Me too. We just been we just been kind of hanging out. We were just talking about uh, you know Elon Musk and artificial intelligence, and <laughs> you know him talking about that we're becoming cyborgs without you know realizing it and stuff yeah. like that. You know, <laughs> sounds, sounds about right. The, the regular, the regular yeah. stuff. The regular <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you know, I think you know Ambrose Andriano. Yes, yes. Actually, I finally had dinner with him this past summer. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Yeah, that's yeah. what he said um i uh actually i helped to edit his book that he just oh uh, yeah that big old thing Jeez, it's man, like God eight, bless yeah it's like 828 pages and i just i just or something like that but i just um started to like read it just because i was interested in it you know but then i started kind of finding some stuff and i said well you know there's like a spacing issue here or there's this there so i just like ended up kind of like editing the book you know without <laughs> without meaning to um but i you know i learned you know i learned a, a ton you know um yeah that's awesome it, yeah 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 um so it's good it's good to see you man yeah it's good to see you too you got the you got you got an impressive beard and everything oh yeah where are you located jordan are you yeah so i'm just just uh west of st louis i'm in st charles oh okay all right my daughter's in st louis okay what part of st louis page avenue right off page avenue i don't it's not in the college district but west of the college area there so okay yeah yeah okay yeah so she's closer to the city than i am yep i don't know if you know who it matt tell tell jordan about yourself and i'll tell him about me and okay um so my name is matt um i'm a i'm a hospice chaplain like your dad yeah yes. right he's has your dad been a hospice chaplain for a while let's see it's yeah it's been it's been seven or uh, seven years or so he he was a minister for 10 years before that. He had a lot of jobs. And when I was a kid, he was a factory worker for GM. Okay. So, but yeah, he's it's probably seven years or so. I'll have to ask him. Does he like it? Yeah, he likes it a lot. Yeah. He's got some times where he's super tired and emotionally yeah. drained, but he really does like it. I don't think he wanted to be doing anything else. Yeah. I hear that a lot. Like, um, a lot of times people will say, once you get into hospice, like you don't want to do anything else, you know, and you get a lot of like, or at least for me, um, I, I, so I'm in Myrtle Beach. I'm just south of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Nice. Um, and so we do a lot of driving all around South Carolina. So I get to listen to, you know, weird podcasts with Commander, <laughs> Dave, Commander David Fravor or, or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Um, you know, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. So, um, and then, yeah, just, just doing that kind of work really kind of, it, it we have a lot of cool um moments and experiences and you kind of feel like uh god is is present i think you know yeah. in, a, in a very cool way so yeah so i work as a hospice chaplain and uh I'm, I'm orthodox christian but we we all come from the same tradition though because we're all we're all restoration movement this is, right. is like our beginnings you know i know <laughs> it's so crazy like 
I was listing off people I knew from, and actually, Paul, I think I knew you were from that. So I was telling someone, it's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's from the restoration movement too. And so is so and so, and so is so and so, and so is so and so. Like, what is, what's going on with that thing? I'm like, yeah, yeah do you have an explanation for it? Because, <laughs> right, we all have our, we all have to try to take our shots. I mean, <laughs> I don't have a comprehensive explanation. I think there are some factors, though, that are interesting to think about. Obviously, the, I'll just speak for my own myself, so because I so that way I'm not overreaching. But I I think like when you think so, there's like a combination of like everything's always on the line because it's it's got the Protestant, but especially evangelical, and then even like biblicist core that you understanding God and what how things work is absolutely important. Nothing could be more important, both because you have to communicate that by evangelizing people. But then also because you yourself need to make sure, you know, that, you know, you have the right thing on baptism or whatever. So I think there's that combination. But then there's kind of the, I was more in a fundamentalist, not as far as it could go, but a fundamentalist context. And so you're also asked to believe some pretty incredible things, you know, like the fossils look old to test your faith. (laughs) So... (laughs) You kind of, I feel like from an early age, you have that combination. It's probably not unique to the restoration movement, but you have that combination of existential, a total existential task that you have to undertake while while being able to consider the wildest, most marginal outside possible explanations for what's appearing to you. And you have to work through all of that more or less on your own or whoever sort of whatever you know group or church you happen to be a part of or whatever if there's some people there that even care about it and that makes for i just think like quite a lot like like my reading of maximus for example i could i can almost trace to this Hmm. because it's like i was reading him thinking well it seems like that's what he says but everyone's assuring me like that 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 would raise so many problems that are insurmountable surely he doesn't mean these things and i'm willing because partly maybe because of the root in the restoration movement like I'm willing to say, well, I don't know, maybe he does. And I mean, I can read the Greek. I know that's actually what he's saying. And I'm also just not a, it's weird because once you you're free of it and you lose the pressure and anxiety, at least I have, then you're, it it actually, you're just open. You're, you're open to more expansive and different sort of readings of things and figures. And so, but I don't know, honestly, I really don't know. You guys, you guys could probably tell me better than I could. No, I, I, I mean, I've only just recently understood that there are patristic scholars that coming out of the restoration movement quite impressive mm-hmm. and I, and that's also a bit of a mystery why that because <laughs> it seems like our tradition has in fact not appreciated the patristics right. and yet you can't say that because there there are just these guys who have devoted their life to origin yep that's true no, i was just say the whole list of people yeah come to mind you're right paul blowers reynold Heine or I, I never know how to say his name. Yeah, Heine, yeah. Heine, <laughs> yeah, I think. yeah. and then uh, Everett Ferguson from the earlier time, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's just yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. Abraham Mallerby was, I guess, he did New Testament, but and I think I don't know if you know Ryan Hemmer. Um, he's very, yeah. very, very, yeah. very impressive. He was he was a good friend. So he was the TA. He was Paul's TA before I, you know, it was like pretty large shoes to fill kind of thing. But you, you were you were talking earlier about um, you know having a good guide. You know, it's not like you have a magisterium. You don't have a in the restoration movement, right? It's like you you kind of it's almost like you if you really want to go hard, you got to find and by God's grace, it's almost like you got to be given 
a great guide, you know? Yeah. And for me, Paul was that guide, you know? So, you know, Paul had us reading everything from, you know, just in, it was just the Bible college, you know, out in Missouri, little Bible college. Um, but we were doing the honors program there and, you know, he had us reading everything from, you know, Derrida, Gerard, you know, we're undergraduates, you know, we're, we're reading <laughs> David Bentley Hart stuff, you know, the beauty of the infinite. We're doing um, wow. all that type of quote unquote, like suspicious almost sort of stuff, like in that context, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? It's oh, like yeah. that people are going, what are you guys doing reading, uh, you know, Heidegger or whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> which that may, that may actually be, you know, a little suspicious, you know, cause he was a Nazi, but I, I get what you're saying. And I kind of had a similar, a, a similar trajectory where, um, it's Paul's fault that I'm Orthodox, you know. So. <laughs> I'm sure he yeah, takes I, proud credit of that, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, yeah, I can't explain my. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure what I did, but Matt, as one of my key students, became Eastern Orthodox. Ryan became Roman Catholic. Ryan was actually very early on. I had just returned from Japan. I, I was going through culture shock, and I just I couldn't figure out what was wrong with people i wouldn't say that i was considering them all lowbrow or it was i didn't i just couldn't understand where they were at then ryan showed up and I thought, oh this guy he thinks you know he, he's <laughs> understanding me and so i was actually in conjunction with ryan that we started the uh i thought well if he can he can actually uh read you know <laughs> uh, and so we started the honors program and yeah so Brian was my first TA. Matt was my TA for a couple of years. And then my last TA was uh, Jonathan Toddy, who has become an Episcopal priest. Okay. So, so I, I guess. Also a very <laughs> impressive thinker. So I guess that I've covered the bases here, but maybe a yeah. little suspicious in where everybody's landed. I don't know. And what, Paul, where do you teach? Let's do forging plowshares. Yeah. So we, I okay. teach online, Plowshares Bible Institute. Uh, okay. Yeah, the, the history that we're describing here, Jordan, is the history of why I don't teach in the former institution. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I was wondering. I was like, yeah. what institution are we talking about here? Because, yeah, I, you know, I could send some people there. <laughs> right. It was a beautiful thing for a while, and then they found out. <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's them. accurate. That's you'll accurate. know them by their fruit. They yeah, saw, yeah. They saw your fruit. I was there for ten years, and then I was in Japan for more than twenty years. And I I ran a little Bible college in Tokyo. Okay, we were associated with uh, Milligan College. Okay, and so I kind of got used to doing my own thing there. Uh, I also, mainly it was Japanese students, but I also had some, I actually were, was doing uh, graduate level courses with some American students too. We were there 21 years. I actually went the first time in 1981 and wow. stayed for a year and then went back. Then we came back here into Moberly, Missouri, and we've been here for since 2005. So Okay, so you were at Central? Yeah, yeah, central. Okay. We try not to. We try not to. It's it's like you know, he who shall not be named. You know. Yeah. Sorry, I broke the code. No, it's okay. Uh, only because you know, and it, I, I I don't think Paul would mind me sharing this, but the um kind of the turning point there for him was he started to call into question or or sort of propose rightly, you know, nonviolent atonement theory. 
And when they right. found out about that, you know, that was, that was too far, you know, that was, yeah. um, you know, um, and that was kind of like the pivotal, the pivotal moment, but you know, the forging plowshares is a, it's kind of like a, we think of it as like a peace fellowship. We, we do a lot of talk about sort of biblical interpretation in the context of peace. And I think Jordan, you and I share an alma mater and I graduated from Ozark Christian yes. college. Yeah, I did too. Yep. 2010. But it, but it wasn't Ozark. It was, what is it now? It's Ozark. Uh, it's still called Ozark Christian College, but it used to be called. It was Ozark Bible College. And yeah. <laughs> that's the other irony here. I don't, I'm sure it was a different place when you went there, but you may have still felt the influence of somebody like Seth Wilson, who was kind oh, yeah. of the founding <laughs> oh, yeah. thinker there. Yes. And of course, he was very anti theology yes that was reflected in the curriculum so i actually didn't have a theology class mm -hmm. until i went to graduate school wow that's it sounds actually like it didn't change a whole lot because i mean not only was the library named after him you know a lot of his students were basically the professors kenny bowles and terry bulland and some of those people matt proctor even i think yeah no it was very well it's funny is i got a bth there technically a bachelor's in theology <laughs> but you only had to take a few seminars by then they did have a few seminars that had names like ecclesiology or christology but they were taught by people that we're just swinging it, you know, and yeah. a lot of it was like word studies throughout, you know, mm -hmm. the, the word church or something. I wrote a paper for that class. It's essentially what I did. So that was the thing. We were, there was a weird group of us, like a concentration of about an overlap of five years of say 10 to 15 students that were like sensing all kinds of things that we weren't getting. And we were sort of forming our own little uh, alternative uh, curriculum. And I mean, anything from, we were really into Howard Wass and Bart and, um, you know, mm -hmm. Yoder at the time when he was a little more kosher, but also like Wittgenstein. And I convinced the dean to allow me to do a whole, <laughs> instead of take philosophy there from somebody who I didn't think could really teach it, I just convinced him to let me read all of Wittgenstein and then give like a presentation to the faculty at the end oh, of the semester. Wow. And they're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, oh, anyway, so. No, so the influence was still very strong, and even to this day, they still they still invoke his name. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And so what you know, what you did get is a kind of on the other end, certainly not from Seth Wilson, but I was also there when Ken Eidelman was. He yep. was actually a teacher, and then we read, you know, the Crystal Cathedral. It was church growth. So what served yep. in place of theology was this kind of church growth philosophy. Mm -hmm. which I think, unfortunately, is characteristic of our churches now, that there, there really isn't a theology or, or, or an under, one that people comprehend or can articulate, but they know all about church growth uh, understanding, and that almost serves in place yep. of a theological understanding. It may have gotten better when you know by the time you got there. So it probably it was sort of in transition phase. I mean, the, the last... The first two years I was there, Eidelman was still the president. And then he left when I was in the middle of my time there. And there were like, yeah, these sort of burgeoning, like, you know, the pacifism became a big thing with the same group I was a part of, you know, but I also took a class where they flew me out to New York City and I heard a bunch of basically former CEOs 
or corporate consultants telling me about stuff and I like realize halfway through it, oh actually none of them have any degrees in theology or Bible. Oh. And yet they're running these churches and church plants. And so I still had to read, you know, what's his name? Uh, Jim, whatever, you know, the uh, uh, good to great, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, so it was like still a mixed bag. I mean, I also take like creation science. <laughs> so yeah, reading yeah. Ken Ham. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was weird. But then I also read like Leslie Newbegin. You know, it's like, what, it, what is happening here? It was just totally random. And I think that was my you're you're a lot brighter and and you were able that's that's what I find impressive is you're coming out of this at a at a very young age you you know you have a very good grasp it took me 20 years to to read my way and being in Japan I think I had to change context mm. to get a grasp on I probably couldn't lo have located myself mm -hmm. and I think that's what is often missing in the at least in in the education that we received at, at, or I received at Ozark and then I don't know that Cincinnati was a lot different you know it, that there was some improvement but again it was very much in the midst of the battle for the bible and the the idea of biblical inerrancy and Jack Cottrell mm -hmm. was kind of the reigning figure and theologian <laughs> who uh by default, I think, has become the shaping thinker in the Restoration Movement. Mm -hmm. Now, people at Lincoln, of course, would decry that description, but I think that's the reality. Yeah. That if there is a theology, it's that of Jack Cottrell, who has been highly, he's written a lot, he's written more than anybody, I think, in our yeah. branch of the movement, mm -hmm. and has been highly in influential. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And for the record, I think that I think that Paul should be the restoration movement, yes. uh, theo, you know, theologian. Oh yeah, yeah. But, that, but that ain't gonna happen. Uh, so, <laughs> you know. But and, and Jordan, we want to respect your time, man. Do you have a like a hard stop or? No, uh, not really. I so most of the time. So you probably already know I'm a stay at home dad. My wife works three days a week as a nurse, so she gets the full time in three days. So this is one of my days. That's the beautiful side. I mean, I do oh, marathons wow. three days a week with me and four kids from the time they get up to the time to go to bed. But then these few days is kind of like a, hey, do what you want. So I'm good. Good cool. deal. Good deal. Jordan, I, I and I want to say that I, I want to say this in a way that you feel good about it. <laughs> okay. First of all, I you're you're highly impressive. I mean, just your maximum scholarship and the, the things that I've seen of you. And I, I don't mean this in a perverse way. But I must say, I take a certain delight in understanding that you're a stay-at-home dad, and I think that is so appropriate for a really top-notch theologian. Well, no, I take that as a total compliment. I, I uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I think I, somewhere I've talked about it that it was a hard transition, and I had to go from I taught two years on the college level, then I took a job teaching high school girls to move us back here close to family with our growing family and uh that was a tough year i actually really liked the students but um and i still talked to some of them but it was a really tough year i don't think i'd ever actually experienced depression until that year it was a dark dark time but i came out of that year definitely deciding i wasn't going to continue teaching high school but we were also about to have our fourth daughter i've got four daughters 
so I'm surrounded by girls. It's been a godsend, you know. I mean, it's been it's been a judgment. It's like a judgment. Like you have to be humiliated so you can be humble. But coming out of it at now a year and a half later, I'm actually I don't even look for jobs anymore. <laughs> and uh obviously there's objective reasons for that too. It's there's nothing really there to look for. But uh, you know, other than like a, if anyone asks me to apply for a job, I'll throw throw in my old stuff that I've already written up, but you know, even if I got, like, I've got one out right now, and it's like, even if I get that, if I were to get an offer, I'd almost have to be convinced it's worth taking, because yeah. uh, because uh, this is not a bad life. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's insane to me, though, that I, I, I don't understand, like, I literally don't understand. If you can't get a job, I, I, I just, that baffled that, you know, I mean, you know, when I went to under Paul and did my undergrad and did my graduate, I was like, oh, I want to be, a, you know, I want to be a professor, you know, that would be great. Um, and then I quickly I, I became an adjunct at Lincoln and just realized that like it's a it's a horrible job. It's like you get paid you know twenty four thousand dollars a year or whatever. And you have more uh, work than anybody else and you got a bigger class load. And it's just it's just insane. There's no chance of getting tenure or anything like that. That's just out of the question. And so but it's just what does that mean for like that Jordan Daniel Wood can't get a job as a professor? Like it, it must not be <laughs> worth having. It must not be worth anymore. It must not be worth having. Well, I think that's that's a nice complimentary way to put it to me because it's, you know, there's a whole we could have a whole discussion about that. It, but it's it's a separate it's a convergence of several things. I think at least I mean Paul probably has seen the whole whole thing here. I mean the whole like, uh, and so you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it seems like on the one hand there's just objective things that have 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 occurred in the last say, two decades that regardless of how good you are or whatever they affect you so there's just the general demise of the humanities there's the increase of emphasis on stem there's the university sort of failing to be universal in their university sort of program there's i think though particular stress on theology and philosophy you know and but then i have to say in my own case and i wrestle with this even today i was just thinking about all this like i i see that i'm an ill-fitted uh uh, thinker for like say the catholic world which is where i where i've been the last eight years because on paper i don't look like i could have a stand a chance at like say a gonzaga or a georgetown or something like that because i'm a white cisgender heterosexual man with four kids who's a catholic who studied history who wrote about a greek monk in the seventh century you know that's not <laughs> that's not really a a, a concoction for true liberation although i think it is and in fact i have friends that are like are very progressive catholic theologians and like will say the stuff that i think is you know kind of more radical than they're even willing to to allow sometimes but but you can't see that on paper you don't see that from my publications or whatever but then on the other hand when i do get most of the looks i've gotten and got to the, i got to the final round once for a job at cua i was flown out there i gave a whole talk the whole deal Spent the whole day, felt like it went pretty well, but I was surprised I was even asked because the CUA and those types, like, you know, they want you to be a Thomist, basically. They 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 want you to sort of adhere to Vatican II, but they're sort of afraid of it. They want you to, there's very, you know, my kind of somewhat open universalism isn't really welcome. My association with folks like David Hart and... And even other people that are a little more bizarre, like John Bear, who who I consider sort of one of my people I emulate. And um, 
you know, he's a little he's a little easier because he can slip in as the patrologist and the historian. But I actually happen to think he's one of the best theologians alive. That's interesting. You put on a scale of bizarre, you put bear <laughs> beyond heart. I wouldn't have thought that. <laughs> I mean, the stuff, yeah, in the stuff you like, yeah, because if you get down, like, I don't know if you guys read his book on the Gospel of John. Uh -huh, I have. Okay. It's like, man, that stuff, you know, I, I was one time in a New York diner with uh, with John, and he was eating liver and onions, which is really off-putting. <laughs> But and he's very loud, so everybody's looking at him every time he laughs. Oh! You know, he's an enormous man, and um, <laughs> and I remember he he'll make remarks like I said something about Trinitarian theology, or something like whatever Trinitarian theology is not a real thing. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and like so he's just if you really get him talking, it's it's amazing, but and it's really fascinating and always so fun. But you know, but when I get in those circles, it's like. I don't make sense to them, you know, and radical orthodoxy sort of had, has its day and it's sort of waning. And I don't know. It's like, you know, you're a, the stuff I think Christologically, it's a lot of like, you know, stuff that I think Catholic theologians have been saying, but then when you get down to it, it's like, can you really handle it? And, and so I'm not, I don't fit into the like, you know, conservative Catholic people that really care about theology and like great books and stuff either really, really clearly, although I'm obviously more my profile is more that. So I, that has been, you know, those two, that whichever way I'm going and given the fact that there's such a flood of the market, there's so many people, so many PhDs, uh, so few jobs, so much nepotism and stuff. It's like the, people, here's the, the bottom line is they don't want to have to explain anything. Institutions don't want to have to explain anything. Yeah. If they could, if they could hire, you know, look, they just want somebody to teach a four four or a three four or whatever. If they have, they don't want anyone. They don't want bishops so and so saying like, "Well, wasn't this guy like a universalist? That's weird. What's up with that?" You know, I, I don't talk about sexuality things or all the hot button issues, but universalism is enough of a strike that's like, why don't we just get this other person who's more or less sort of the white Catholic dude anyway, who doesn't have that strike? I mean, there's just less explaining. We don't have time for that. There's so few jobs so many people so many other options to just fill the space so those are some of the reasons i think i just yeah. don't see much i think theology is more or less returning to the church and churches and various institutions and alternative forms you know no i gotta I, shoot I, I gotta shoot just real quick paul i gotta shoot my shot here okay you should become orthodox that's my that's my evangelic that's my that's my no i'm just i'm, I'm just no, kidding it's, it's weird you said that because i had a whole conversation today earlier about that with my friend he was saying the same thing but anyway go ahead no no i was i was just kind of joking uh half joking but we're we're in desperate need of of great theologians uh in the orthodox church so. well and obviously it's actually weird that the best reception i've gotten so far has obviously been among you know orthodox telly papa nicolau is, is a friend brandon gallagher is a friend David Hart's a friend. John Bear's a friend. You know, all the Fordham people are friends. Uh, my one of my good friends is Jack Pappas. He's a Greek Orthodox and at Fordham. And uh, and then Pentecostals. <laughs> For some reason, Pentecostals are always talking. I mean, I just talked last week in two two like online sessions. John Bear did the day sessions on Maximus. I was doing the night sessions on Maximus, and it's like this. Afro-Latino Pentecostal something or other. I don't even know. Bishop Mark Sharona. I don't even know these people. But they pay but they invite me in and they pay me to talk about Max. It was like serious stuff. Like these people wow. really love it. Wow. I mean, they, they got John Bear there and they're picking his brain for four hours a day. And it's like, 
Man, this is so it's been weird, but Chris Chris Green is a name you may have seen. Yeah. He's he's become a good friend. So it's weird. It is the Orthodox and the Pentecostals that are more interested. That's mm. whatever. Yeah, and that and maybe that's my point. That uh, being outside the, the the mainstream or outside the city, I think that's the real place where, I agree. Theolo- where theology happens. Totally, totally, hundred percent. And I'm saying this as a kind of self indictment that having been part of institutions uh no matter how you know, i always knew that this wasn't going to end well but even so there is a constraint that maybe you're unconsciously putting upon yourself because you really keeping your job it can dictate quite yeah. a bit without you're even thinking about it too much now obviously sure. i I did. I didn't think about it enough. To, <laughs> Eventually, no. you stopped thinking about it, even subconsciously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I think it is quite freeing, and and I think that that's what I recognize mm-hmm. in you is here's somebody who has great freedom of thought. You're doing radical stuff, and I really don't think you could do that in the typical institution. That's something I've thought about and prayed about a little bit more recently. There's always the question: Am I just post hoc rationalizing? But also, what's the difference between that and seeing providence? You know, those are not always really phenomenologically distinct. I kind of do wonder, you know, sometimes I'm like, perhaps God, you know, I don't want to put something on me like I'm some kind of great hero or something like I've got this you know, unique calling that that is somehow enormous. But so it's not that, but it's but it is one of those like, you know, God, of course, as origin says, nothing, you know. Many things happen against God's will. Nothing happens apart apart from his providence. So if things happen, nothing happens apart from his providence. I do wonder whether or not exactly what you said is partially the reason why I'm guided this way. Is I, 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 I agree with you. I don't know. I, there's no way if I got that job a year ago at CUA that I could be doing. I, could, I don't even know if I could be doing this. I mean, I don't know. I doubt, yeah. I doubt it. I see God's providence in this, and I see you. You you have a a public presence. Believe me, there's a lot of people, a lot of young people looking at. Well, here's Jordan Daniel Wood. You don't get any more impressive, I don't think, <laughs> academically, and wow. you know your your thought. And I think that that then speaks to kind of where the institution, the institutionalized church institutionalized academia uh as a whole has gone i think it mm. i think it speaks over and against in fact what mm. is happening in the mm. institution i know that i couldn't you know I, obviously i was coming out of a very constrained restricted kind of fundamentalist institution ironically that i survived <laughs> as long as i did mm-hmm. but i think that it the case there is just sort of the case in point of what is typical yeah Yeah. well thank you paul i really appreciate that it means a lot coming from you we are here talking with jordan daniel wood and matt matt and i have both been following jordan for a while i uh have read your dissertation on maximus and uh some of the other articles you've written and just found your work quite impressive we both claim ozark bible college Ozark Christian <laughs> College yeah. as our alma mater. Now I don't know <laughs> if you want that out front and center, or I don't um, mind. That doesn't bother me. <laughs> I think it it does say something. In other words, the journey. I think it marks the journey that you've been on, 
and certainly that I, that I've been on. I need some help here. You got your PhD from Boston University. So yeah, after the after Ozark, uh, let's see, I went to St. Louis University for my master's and did some work on origin of Alexandria and some of the Greek uh, fathers. And then, um, yeah, then I spent a year in France. Just my wife and I went there before kids to to learn French, did a language school for a year. And then after that, I went to Boston College for a, for a PhD as well. And that's where I ended up writing on Maximus. And what, do the, did the two things converge, Boston College? Did you go there too, right on Maximus? I did not. Uh, actually, I I went there to work with um, Father Khalid Anatolios, who's now in Notre Dame. Uh, but, I, but I didn't know at the time he was actually going to be leaving so so i applied oh. there and uh and so anyway by the time i got there he was he was basically on his way out and so i was sort of like in a little bit lost at sea i was gonna write on gregor of nisa uh but i didn't quite know exactly what you know you just have sort of random thoughts or whatever but um i just basically my first semester there i took a class on maximus in the bot what's called the bti and ended up yeah taking a class on maximus as ambiguous with the translator of of the ambiguous and from that class, I kind of realized, okay, I'm actually going to stick right here and spend a lot more time with this guy. Okay. And then you produced a dissertation. The book title I have, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation in Maximus the Confessor. Yes, exactly. And I yes. assume that is building upon revision of your dissertation. Yeah, exactly. Um it's basically just a, rev um, a slightly revised and expanded version. And really the fourth chapter of the book is is what was the primary addition to the book. And actually, that was my favorite chapter to write. So, yeah. But the rest of it was essentially the dissertation. I have to admit, I've read the dissertation. I haven't read the book. Okay. What did I miss? <laughs> oh, well, you missed the chapter called The Whole. So in a way, you kind of missed everything. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 no, no, it was uh so the fourth chapter, you know, after I kind of lay out as you read the dissertation, what are in the book is the first three chapters essentially, the kind of logic of incarnation and then and then try to map that onto the logic of creation from nothing and sort of or if you like sort of cosmology uh is Maximus's Christology as well and but, you know, and, and some people already, uh, I had already thought about this and wanted to do it in dissertation, didn't have time to do it. But one of my readers raised the question, a good question. Okay, this all sounds nice, but what about like the fall? What about the failure of creation from the start? And with Maximus, it's even more of an intense or an extreme question because he had, he on three different occasions, not only says there was a fall, but he says that Adam fell, quote, at the very moment he came into being. And so as he develops this in various texts, you kind of, you get the, you get the sense that what he's saying is that when you look back in the history of creation, this sort of the, towards the beginning, like when it begins, begins to unfurl, it's already fallen. So creation as it appears to us, even in its origins is not creation or not simply creation, but falling from creation. And so for Max, so the question, when you when you raise this question on the one hand, you've got like the you know, kind of the central text of the book is in Biggium 7.22, the word of God, very God, wills always and in all things to actualize the mystery of his incarnation, always in and in all things. 
Well, you have that. You said that right next to his other statements where he says, but also creation failed at the very start. So what happened if this with this sort of sublime universal incarnation of the word in and as Christ through and in all things and always, why, why did it fail so quickly? And so that's really what that chapter, in a lot of ways, that's really what the fourth chapter is trying to address, but it kind of opens up into a whole lot of, I think, even more interesting avenues than I had anticipated. So, And am I not mistaken that this is actually, and much of Maximus, is actually a development out of origin? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something like, that's been, you know, it's not controversial among scholarship, and it hasn't really been for 100 years to say, you know, we don't always know exactly what Maximus has read, but certainly he is familiar with origin. He's especially familiar with Evagrius, who is, you know, a kind of a great sort of interpreter and developer of origin's thought. Um, and and then he's also, though, at a point where he's integrating, you know, Gregory of Nyssa, of course, he names him and he knows him, his work. So that's another kind of originism. I don't think that's mm-hmm. too off to say that. It's another version of origin's thought developed in a certain way. And then, um, you know, and then he's got Dionysius um, that he he comments on. And um, so he's sort of, you know, but then he's also a party to a major party to all these later Christological controversies. And so he's bringing all that together in this kind of what I think is a pretty remarkable synthesis. But, yeah, I think you're right. You know, I mean, as as is often the case, Origen sets the terms. <laughs> <laughs> for mm-hmm. for uh certainly for the Greek East, but but even for you know wider than that. But I think I think it is important to I, I really can only think in terms of scope, like like just the cosmological, the cosmic thinking in in relation to and in conjunction with the incarnation, you know, and the and, and creation of the Trinity, it really is origin who's the who's the only other one that kind of I think matches Maximus in, in scope and I think mm-hmm. in that way Maximus certainly I mean even down to the formulas that sometimes he'll use like probably Carp Sherwood this this Maximus scholar from the first part of last century he's you know he he noted already not only does Maximus sometimes use similar formulas like if you read on first principles Origen's going to say you know two or three times the beginning is like the end yes the yeah, end is like yeah. the beginning right Maximus actually ups the ante and says they're identical. The beginning says, is the end. The beginning is the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's some resonance in like Gregory of Nyssa says something similar in his uh, homilies on Ecclesiastes. So, you know, so, but so sometimes even down to the formula, not it's received straight from origin through that line and then perhaps even modified or kind of made even more extreme in some cases. So, um, you know, famously, there's a kind of we know very little about this faction, but there's an originist group in the say fifth, sixth century called the Isochristi. You know, the, uh, the those that say that we will become equal to Christ mm-hmm. in the eschaton, and this is only reported, and we don't have any writings from them. We barely even have any names. We just have this sort of bland descriptions from certain secondhand sources. And Maximus, you know, and one of the things I do in the third chapter on deification in Maximus is I kind of go through in several texts. He He's not only saying that, but in a lot of ways, he makes statements that are more radical sounding mm-hmm. in the direction of our, our unity or even oneness or even identity, Davtotis, with with more radical than some of the stuff that even it was reported that the, the so-called isochristi or isochristoi, if you pronounce it that way, uh, say. Yeah, so uh, definitely I think origin... I think Maximus, you know, if I want to put it really provocatively and quickly, 
I think in, in a certain way, his, I think I'd put it this way. He is able to perfect origins form of thinking mm, like because, that, so. because he can tinker with the content through his Christ, his highly and much more developed Christology. Mm-hmm. So it's precisely because he can take like what I call in the book or not, I call it, it's, it's a term that's been used for a long time, but neo-Chalcedonian Christology, this, this new way of developing and therefore defending Chalcedon's definition of Christ as one person, two natures uh, in a way that's more amenable to somebody like Sir of Alexandria, who wants to emphasize the oneness, the subject, the one subject of Christ, the one person. Um, he's able to take that, and since he makes it kind of, as it were, his metaphysics or his cosmology or his view of creation, he can, I think, avoid some of the p- potential pitfalls in the speculations of origin. But the whole form of thought, you might even call it the gestalt, the way he approaches, the whole shape of his thought, is, I don't see how it's not anything but origins in that way. Right. Mm. Oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear you say that, because that... In my naivete, that was the way I was understanding Maximus. Oh, this just sounds like more origin, but it's origin developed. Yeah. And it's, of course, I assume that Maximus, like everybody else, is kind of doing origin a little bit on the sly because yes. you can always, you know, you don't want to quote your sources too much. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and so there's been, where even Balthazar, the, the great Catholic theologian mm-hmm. hunters and Balthazar, I mean, he he was the first one who noticed like there there were massive swaths of just Evagrius lifted by Maximus, and um, and he sort of identified those. But the similar things have been done with respect to origin. I mean, just today, for example, I was looking for for some other thing. The very first section of uh, Origin's treatise on prayer, he comes out and says, you know, there are some realities that are a very first sentence in like paragraph. There are some realities that are above us, inaccessible to us, who are limited, blah, 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 you know. And he says, but what has what was impossible has become possible in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the that wisdom, which is wisdom itself, and those of us that only participate in wisdom, that very wisdom has been open to us because, as it says, and then he quotes 1 Corinthians, right, 1 and 2, Christ has become for us the wisdom of God, right? That exact kind of thought, and even that citation, I know of a few places in Maximus where he basically does that too. Mm, so you mm. see, so you just you just wonder, you know, and anyway, there's a lot of examples like that. And that's not Maximus readers and commentators and scholars have noticed that, but it, it has been the case that they more often, I think, focused on his quote unquote repudiation of originism, because he does. Re- he resists what what he calls sort of these like sort of you know godless myths or whatever about pre-existence of souls and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly there. So whatever version of originism is floating around or you know what whatever sort of story is being told and attached to origin's name, he does repudiate that. But I think what needs to be emphasized as well is that on the far side of that repudiation, I don't see I think personally there's a sort of development and um, a reprisal of some of the fundamental, like I said, the form of origins thought. So it's, it's as it were further purifying and baptizing <laughs> origin. Yeah. And I, on this, my resource on origin, I'm presuming that John Bear is a true reader of origin. He introduces on first principles. And to my mind, the, the kind of originism that is developed is completely avoided in what Bear 
in Bear's description on first principles. And of course, Bear is, I think, reliant upon Samalicus, mm -hmm. who is just reading origin over and against, you know, the the majority opinion that, oh, here's more Greek philosophy. That guy's unbelievable, man. Samalicus oh, yeah. Is like, that guy's, yeah. that guy's. I had a I had an advisor once say like yeah he's either a genius or he's completely mad you know <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah maybe a little both but maybe no, a little it's, both, yeah. uh, no and I you know and especially bear I, I it's actually it's been quite a few years since I've uh, read some Alicos is, is you know some of his major stuff and um, bear though it's you know the, one of the ways he can do that at least is is because he takes origin pretty seriously when origin does things like identify the word the logos with that man jesus christ with the incarnate word not some right. mm -hmm. principle floating somewhere you know so even doing that like in unference principles like two six where you get the kind of famous you know supposed fusion of the soul pre-existent soul of christ with with the spirit and divinity and like then that comes like if you read that in the way bear proposes you know it's provocative it's different than the way a lot of other people do but but what's and so however you assess that and i think it's pretty convincing and pretty good and and there's certainly object textual grounds for all this um but you can at least note the similarities you know with again if if, if you're a maximus and you have a neo-chalcedonian christology you're going to be emphasizing that there is no division between right. the two natures here right the word the word is always jesus christ it's not some other word right. has right. some association with jesus in some kind of loose or right. or adventitious way and if you do that, that becomes itself a hermeneutical key. That's it. Yeah. We're rereading all kinds of stuff, including origin, right? And so it's it's remarkable. I think even somewhere in the book I've got a footnote where I do <laughs> I just have to like cite Bear's introduction to his yeah. edition of on of on first principles and be like, we did discover some of these, you know, themes independently. I mean, I've been influenced by Bear's work prior, just on early people like Irenaeus and Athanasius, but it is pretty remarkable. <laughs> Like it's remarkable that we're I, I you know Maximus taught me some of these things, and Bear's finding them in Origin. I mean that and, intro that he does is worth the price of the. I mean the intro absolutely. on on First Principles is just mind-boggling for me at least. You know yes. Um and and he clears up so many of the you know the problems with the prior translations and stuff like that and points out yep. all the. And it's just, it's just such a, I think that's a masterful. And by the that. way, he, he does the same thing with Gregory of Nyssa's, uh, mm. what, what, what does he title it? On the Human Image or something like that, on the Formation of the Human Image, uh, which is another translation and edition of that work that normally is called On the Making of Man. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he, it's like another, I don't know, about 50,000 word uh, introduction. So Watch out for that. I think it's about to be released. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, Unfortunately, I, it's, I think it's Oxford, so it'll be like $1,000 for, for yeah. the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and, and my first question for you, Jordan, was going to be, you know, for our listeners, uh, what is it about Maximus that got you fired up and got, you know, why should our listeners care about Maximus who might not be familiar with him, but you've already kind of, you know, his association with origin and things like that, you've already yeah. kind of... I mean, one thing to add to that, which, which sort of in a way... It just kind of sum, sums up some of the things we've been saying. I mean, I do think what what precisely the way Origin stands out, but but I think Maximus as well. It's the synth, it's the synthetic mind. I mean, you know, it's um, 
famous question 60 of responses to questions to Thalassius, you know, he says, for example, that he's commenting on first Peter one twenty, which is the mystery foreknown, you know, and, and uh, foreknown before the foundation of the world. It's one of those texts and, and Thalassius is, question or the one who asked him these questions and Maximus is responding to them about ambiguities in scripture you know he asks him well uh, who foreknows this mystery you know this mystery of Christ well Maximus doesn't answer that first instead he says what is foreknown what is the mystery in other words this is where I get the title of my book by the way the whole mystery of Christ because he says you know what is foreknown is clearly and obviously the hypostatic union of you know God and man and Christ who th- through whom humanity is brought into perfect identity in every way with divinity. Perfect identity, not mm. not just conjunction or union even, henoses, but identity. And then he says, you know, he, he so he's he, a like really dense paragraph on like highly technical, just throwing out his Christology in a nutshell. But then right after that, you get the famous declaration, this is the purpose for which all things were made. This is the preconceived goal established before all ages. This is that for for the sake of which all exists and itself exists for the sake of nothing else. This is the incarnation he's talking about, the mystery mm-hmm. of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then he says, you know, that in Christ, or rather in the whole mystery of Christ, all of the ages and all of the creatures within those ages have received not just their end, their telos, but their archi their principle, their beginning, their origin. So everything that exists receives its beginning and end in Christ and specifically in an event in the middle of middle of time space, right? Mm-hmm. And so why I bring this up is because that kind of synthetic, cosmic, expansive vision of the mystery of Christ, which by the way, I have to say, is basically just stated in the New Testament, like Colossians 3.11, you know, you could look there. Uh, or you know, in the end, Christ is is and is in all things. It's just stated plainly. Hmm. That kind of like panchristic, if you will, synthesis of all things. I do think, and this is sort of just a hunch, but there has a particular resonance for where we are right now. I mean, you know, you look around; it's like everything is is expanding. All of our horizons, the horizons of knowledge, the, the cosmos. We just saw six, you know, galaxies in the early universe with a James Webb telescope that we didn't even think were possible to form that soon at 500,000 years after the Big Bang. You know, so you're, you know, you're learning more things about history every day. There's all this stuff about, you know, you know the, the history of the human species and many different hominoids. It's like everywhere you look, there's an expanding horizon. And so the question is, can Christianity cope with it? Can it match it? Can it integrate it? Can it actually think through it? Can it synthesize it? And this is this is a time that I think you need to be able to find the luminaries in the Christian tradition that have the potency. Obviously, Maximus didn't know about all that, and he didn't think through that explicitly. But I'm talking about the power, the potency, the ignition, the, something that can ignite us to be able to expand ever further into what I call, or what he calls, and I take from, the whole mystery of Christ, you know. And so that's what captivates me about Maximus. And that's why I think he's particularly useful, is sort of an instrumental way to put it, but he's particularly salient at this point. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth 
transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.